Welcome to Canthropod, the Cambridge Anthropology podcast. This is episode 20, Anthropology Beyond the Academy, Public Health, by me, Sean Lazar. Alisi Makatoa and Nina Fudge are researchers in primary healthcare. They came to Cambridge to talk about how their undergraduate degree in social anthropology has informed their careers in and outside of academia. I caught up with them during their visit, and our conversation turned into a discussion of general practice and primary healthcare in the UK, as well as their thoughts on the role of anthropological approaches in health research. My name's Nina Fudge. Um, I'm Alicia Mekato. Uh, I work at King's College London mm-hmm. at Bush House. Great. Um, and I work at Queen Mary University of London uh-huh. on the um, Whitechapel Royal London Hospital campus. So you both work in uh, health research, right, and public mm-hmm. health. Um, how did you come to this career um, after your anthropology degrees? Um, I think for me, so after my um, undergraduate degree, I uh, went to Japan for two years and I think it was when I was in Japan and having done the medical anthropology module um, during undergraduate studies that I really wanted to um, do something medical Mm -hmm. and I did actually apply to medical school to do medicine Mm -hmm. And then realised it was going to, well, at the time, actually I should have just gone and done it because uh, at the time I felt it was going to take years and years and I'd be really old <laughs> by the time I became a doctor and it was going to cost, I didn't know how I was going to fund it. So I decided to not go down the medicine becoming a medical doctor route, but to do a degree in medical research so I decided to do a degree in um, environmental epidemiology and policy at the Mm -hmm. um, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and I really enjoyed it but it was quite quantitative obviously Mm -hmm. because it was epidemiology (laughs) and I perhaps didn't realise how quantitative it was and I think I also it made me realise how much I really enjoyed the qualitative side of research and what I'd been doing in the anthropology degree mm-hmm. and so then my research jobs after that masters I just sort of veered more to a the sort of qualitative research and then I um, saw an, a job advert where they wanted someone to use ethnographic methods mm-hmm. in the research and you could also do a PhD with that and when I saw that advert I thought oh this is me finally getting the chance to do what I trained in as an undergrad Um, and that's how I got into health research and I've been there ever since. Fantastic, how about you Elisa? Um, Well I left here having done the same medical anthropology core unit with Nina and of all the things I did here that was the one unit that kind of set me off I think Mm -hmm. in terms of what I wanted to do then I temped for a while in the city which was horrendous but paid off some debts Um, and then I went and did a masters at Royal Holloway in medical sociology Mm -hmm. mainly because it was funded and I couldn't find a medical anthropology masters that was funded so I thought, okay, we'll do medical sociology. And then that got me a job in public health mm-hmm. in the NHS, 
Then I spent 10 years in public health management, um, mainly working with GPs mm -hmm. and trying to implement a national public health programme via GPs right. to the population. So it involved a lot of... I, I thought it would involve a lot more ethnography, and in fact it didn't. Right. Um, and that's something about public health that we might talk about later. Mm -hmm. um, so finally, I've had enough. <laughs> um, and had children, and then looked for a PhD when it was time to go back to work, and again, was lucky enough to find a funded one. Mm -hmm. um, and a bit like Nina, I found what seemed perfect. It was working with GP, working about the research was about GPs mm -hmm. um, on a programme that I had implemented mm -hmm. when I was in the NHS. Right. Plus there was a lot of freedom. So my supervisors are great mm -hmm. and they're very keen that I do the research the way I want to do it. As it happens, that has turned out to be much. It's sort of brought me back to anthropology, mm -hmm. even though I would never say I'm doing official pure ethnography right. um, however it's the closest I've come to being able to use my degree training in the academic research field mm -hmm. and I hope that when it's over that will be my stepping stone to move back into research. Mm. Can I ask um, the reason I'm asking this is because my father was a GP, uh -huh. so I've got a bit of, you know, and I've got a brother who's a, a new GP. Okay. So do you think, um, in that 10 years that you were mm -hmm. working in public health, did sort of life or professional life for GPs change very um, much? Massively, and actually, I'm just writing up my findings now, and actually um, a finding that I wasn't trying to find, oh. and certainly wasn't expecting, it now turns out that's going to be one of my major findings, which is that I think I'm going to argue that the professions in terms of self-identity mm -hmm. has shifted mm -hmm. as a result of different ways of control from the centre mm -hmm. being exercised. So in terms of power, mm -hmm. in a kind of Foucauldian sense, yeah. or kind of Rosa Miller, sort of power at a distance, yeah. um, I think that's what I've noticed. So through yeah. my research, I was thinking, none of this makes sense. <laughs> um, and actually, when I've looked back at it, I think that's the only way it does make sense. I think the profession mm -hmm. has shifted in terms of how it self-identifies so with the centre. So I think... Um, so when I look at my GPs I've interviewed, my older GPs, the ones I call kind of pre-quaff GPs, mm -hmm. so they're the ones who are now senior partners coming up for retirement. Their relationship with central power mm -hmm. is very, please go away and leave us alone. Yeah. <laughs> and we're the professionals, we know what we're doing, we've been doing it for years, off you go. Yeah. And when I was interviewing the, the younger cohorts, so the kind of post-quaff generation, who have only ever been trained to expect to be performance managed, mm -hmm. they have a completely different attitude to it. They don't like it, mm -hmm. but they accept it mm -hmm. and they understand that it's part of their 
professional working life. Mm. Some of them even sort of whisper that they do like it, but then they follow it up with, don't tell anyone else (laughs) that I think Wolf may have raised standards. Uh Um, So I think one of my sort of main arguments is going to be that A, the professions literature is out of date, actually, Mm. when you think back to the really traditional Mm. classic model. Um, Yeah, but like all best PhD questions, I guess, it it has completely, has no similarity to the one I started out with, (laughs) and it's found things along the way that I never, I wasn't looking for. Uh Which again, I think is the beauty of an anthropology Mm. background and a qualitative approach, because I went in open, Whereas, in, you know, in a quantitative setting, you would go and look for one particular thing. Mm-hmm. If you didn't find it, that's your result. And if you did find it, that's also your result. Yeah. And it's a, you know, that's it. You write up and it's done. Mm. So, can I ask yeah. what's quaff? Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's a it's quality and outcomes framework. So it's implemented by the second Blair administration, right. and it was a way to a encourage more people to go in, to become GPs. Uh-huh. It's basically a way of giving them a pay rise, but looking like you're also giving them a stick. Oh, goodness. Yes. So, quaff was a stick, and the carrot was a really nice financial package if you hit all your targets throughout Mm -hmm. the year. Mm -hmm. Okay, I understand. Yeah, so it wasn't popular. (laughs) (laughs) Even though they got a lot more, they got a nice income. Yeah. Um, actually, going back to that uh, theme about research and different kinds of research, Nina, I mean, mm. um, how have you found your kind of anthropological perspective has affected your research and what, what sort of contributions do you think it, it makes to public health research to have an anthropological perspective? Um, I think, so I'm also now working in um, general practice oh, okay. and in pharmacies on a project that's um, looking at polypharmacy, so when people are prescribed lots of um, different medicines. Mm -hmm. And I think, especially in general practice, the kinds of problems that are having to be addressed are really complex. And a lot of the time, no one knows what the answers are. Mm. And they can't really be addressed by the sort of gold standard randomised control trial. Mm -hmm. And I have seen a lot of um, research that people get really excited about, which is sort of complex intervention trials. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people have had to put a lot of money and effort into designing these pieces of research. But then the result that comes out is kind of, they find it doesn't work. So... Mm -hmm like an intervention, mm. a template they've designed or something that can be used in a consultation or a way of providing information mm-hmm. to patients. And it's really hard to identify, is it because that actual intervention didn't work or mm. were there other factors, like a new policy might come in during the implementation of the mm. trial and was that what meant mm-hmm. that the, the intervention kind of got dirtied mm-hmm. because other practices that didn't have the intervention were were being affected by this new policy change. So I I kind of think that maybe we should stop looking at these expensive trials and mm. take um, 
a more ethnographic approach, which is what we're doing in our um, current research to understand, mm. you know, what is going on. And actually, rather than trying to sort of come up with a new way of doing something by inserting something into an existing system, we look at how is practice happening mm-hmm. on the ground now mm-hmm. and what can we learn from that that could be used mm-hmm. to, to to come up with solutions mm-hmm. to these really complex um, problems that we're that's existing in in health and in mm. in general practice. So um, again, what do you think about the um, uh, maybe a kind of historical trajectory or, or shift in the relationship between general practice and pharmacies and, and where you think that might go in the future? I mean, is it the case? My my sense is that people. Um, tend to go a bit more to their pharmacists now with basic problems than they used to. Perhaps. Well, I think there's been a push right. for that to happen, to right. take pressure off GPs. Mm-hmm. Is but, that a good thing? <laughs> um, I mean, pharmacists are... Because I've, I've just finished a period of fieldwork in, yeah. in pharmacies, and they are amazing and they're yeah. incredibly knowledgeable. And if you want to know about a medicine you're probably better off going to a pharmacist Mm -hmm. but this push to send patients with say minor ailments to go and speak to the pharmacist rather than clogging up GPs I think just moves the problem Mm -hmm. to another healthcare professional and you know pharmacists aren't necessarily as far as I know not getting paid any more to address this additional influx Mm. of people who would be going to the GP for advice Mm. Um, and I mean the pharmacists that I've been observing are the kindest most caring people and they would never turn anyone who comes up to the counter with a problem they would never turn them away they'll always try and help them tell them what medicine to use or if if they need to go and see other healthcare professionals direct them and I just sometimes I just slightly feel this push to involve pharmacists is it does it end up exploiting a, a sort of kind and you know on the whole a kind and caring mm. group of people. Mm. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> Something I'm interested in is um, different forms of kind of collective uh, labour organisation. Actually, my mm. work is on trade unions with public sector workers in Argentina, and one thing that I've spotted is that. Uh, you know, we think of professionals as not being members of trade unions, and, but at the same time, they have really very powerful professional <laughs> associations. And, you know, with the junior doctors strike, it, you know, it struck me that the BMA has become one of the it's most... The kind trade of, union. Yeah, mm, effective trade unions kind of recently. So do you, have you kind of spotted anything, you know, what about, I mean, my dad was you know, a member of the Royal College of GPs or, you know... Well, I think it's about power Mm -hmm. if you talk about that um so why is the bma so successful Mm. compared to other unions that aren't so that aren't staffed by such well-paid mainly men i think then then you're talking about power Mm. when i was um it's a bit of discretion but in some policy work that i have done i've been told on at no point at all do we do anything to annoy 
the <laughs> particular medical <laughs> organisations. Fantastic. Um, so only if we absolutely have to, and that would come from very, very senior. Up mm-hmm. until that point, you do everything you possibly can not to annoy one particular representative body. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's how powerful they are. Yeah. And then I think mm-hmm. we've got to start asking all sorts of questions about power and who they're representing. Uh-huh. And then that goes back to the power of the doctor in the white coat yeah. and the whole history of mm. GPing mm. and how they were brought into the NHS and you know all those kind of questions but I think yeah certainly mm. it's um and they were always outside the NHS that was the thing mm. so they had mm. to be enticed in right hence you still have things like Quoth mm-hmm. you, you have to pay them mm. to do things that most people would expect them to do anyway so for example when I'm interviewing patients we talk about a quaff they've never heard of it and then they're really surprised right <clears throat> and some of their comments are why they're being paid to make a referral to a smoking cessation clinic uh-huh. isn't that their job but under quaff that that isn't their job because it was negotiated really clearly in a contract so if they make a referral mm-hmm. that's an extra payment mm-hmm. so someone's done their job really well <laughs> well good in that luck sense. to them anyway yeah. mm. but it's an interesting yeah. when you look at other um, representative bodies of workers yeah, mm. yeah interesting. who's power who, who gets that sort of power and who doesn't yeah. but even within the doctor profession mm. I mean it's it's kind of I think it's quite well known there's hierarchies mm. yeah. and I think GPs are probably at the bottom yeah right and so in our project on polypharmacy, we're seeing a bit about who, if you're a patient and you've been told to take a certain medicine by your consultant in the hospital, mm-hmm. it's then often the GP that has to then prescribe it. Mm-hmm. So under sort of direction from the hospital doctor, yeah. but it's the GP who has the prescribing responsibility, mm-hmm. yet they they haven't initiated the drug and then I think that makes it really difficult then for if you want to start a conversation about stopping a medicine Mm -hmm. the GP has to then kind of challenge a decision made by a hospital doctor and quite Mm. often you know we've got patients in our study who are kind of adamant that what their hospital doctor has told them is is kind of gospel and Mm. they won't change their medication Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Unless the hospital doctor um, mm. has indicated, so it's it, you know yeah. it becomes quite mm. complicated as to who has responsibility yeah. for say reducing the number of drugs yeah. someone is on. Could that be a bit related to? I mean, I remember with my dad, you know, there. I think he was part of this earlier generation that you're talking about, and I think there was this kind of sense where he had this kind of authority sort of paternalistic um uh kind of sense of authority that the the patients just would do whatever he said i mean has that maybe been a bit broken or maybe not broken but kind of shifted with contemporary gps i mean you know they used to be able to develop a relationship with people or am i just absorbing (laughs) i mean i i certainly see that in so some of the practices i've worked with 
There are certainly these like charismatic GPs, probably a bit like your dad, mm. um, patients who tell me they will wait two months to get yeah. an appointment mm. with, a G- yeah. with that particular GP. Um, and they don't want the locum, they don't want anyone else, they'll wait the two months. Um, but if you start interviewing lots of people, then you start hearing so different people want different things. So working busy people yes. just want a anyone, anyone mm. want a GP, they just need an appointment that day. Yes. Um, so I think there's different... But certainly there are still those sort of char- very charismatic GPs that mm-hmm. people will hang out for to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the practices we're working with, they have a system where every patient is on a doctor's list mm-hmm. to try and um, you know, follow through this idea that you see the same right. um, doctor. So I think people like appreciate... Mm-hmm this idea of that you see the same uh, doctor but I don't know how but it might easy be changing it is to... because a lot of practices now won't give you a name doctor so no. they're sort of managing out that expectation mm. that you have one doctor mm. you're just registered at the practice and you see whoever's around mm. um, I suspect that's the way it's going mm-hmm. um, but it might be that you have you can't have a the same system or mm. process of working for the same patient so yeah. mm-hmm. for your younger working patients with acute mm-hmm. problems they just want to see someone fast yeah. so they can get better and get back to, get work. Back to work and then maybe patients who have got you know multiple long-term yes. conditions they're taking lots of different medicines those they patients need do need to yeah. be on named lists mm. yeah. so so maybe we you know depending on the I don't know if there's practices that that do have different ways of working depending yeah. on their their population of patients, but but I think Nina's comment earlier about um, in in the hierarchy of medicine GPs probably they, you know they're not ranking the exciting acute mm. care. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's reflected in the research. So mm-hmm. if you look at where the research is, there's a lot of money in research in mm. acute medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot in primary care, mm. which is great <laughs> for us because <laughs> it's 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 a really interesting field that it hasn't really been. Um, there's a lot of stuff there to work mm. with and to learn, uh-huh. particularly with an an ethnographic lens. Yeah, I think, and I think people are open to that different approach. Mm-hmm. So the thing that really struck me when we were recruiting practices to our research project, we only needed two practices and a a call went out to um, a sort of network of interested um, GPs Mm -hmm. and we had 40 inquiries and when we went and kind of did a brief about what the project would involve and it's, you know, it's quite demanding on them because we're Mm -hmm. sitting in on consultations we're going to we're videoing consultations sitting in on reception you know we're Mm. kind of we're kind of in the way yeah um but they seemed really interested and in our approach that was looking at practice and what is working well and 
some of the uh, reflective workshops that we're going to be running, mm -hmm. they were really interested in that because they said in their day-to-day -day job they don't have time to ever stop mm -hmm. and reflect about what they're doing and by taking part in this research it would might give them a chance yes. mm -hmm. um, to do that. So I, I do think there is an appetite for, you know, some slightly different... Um, novel approaches to mm -hmm. researching primary care mm -hmm. mm. which mm. so is that are those the sorts of arguments that you use when um, I mean I was just wondering how you might describe your work or your aims to people who who think quantitatively who think that you know you you can only get the truth in numbers or is that really not a problem I don't know it's um I mean we were in the same department mm. at King's, so we were in a population very, I find it still quite more quantitative and yeah. clinically mm. medical. So I think you do have to shout your game mm -hmm. quite loudly. Mm. I mean, still now I find that I, you come across that, and then I think you just have to stress the yeah. depth. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> depth of your research, <laughs> the theory. Often, I find people appreciate the theory because right. I think a, a lot of the empirical quant stuff is great. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of theory in it, mm -hmm. so I think that's sometimes where mm. people stop and go, "Oh, yeah, oh yeah, that's really interesting." Mm. Um, so I think yeah. that analysis depends on. So it's not just empirical. Mm -hmm. I don't mean just, but yeah. it has a, a different depth to it. You're doing a different kind of analysis. Mm -hmm. You're trying to explain the why yeah. rather than this happened and this happened and this happened. Mm. Yeah, and I know they're doing something much more complicated than that, but I think the theory of it mm. goes deeper mm -hmm. and helps you to understand some of these questions. Yeah. Like, you know, often they'll say. We just don't understand why there's this insatiable demand for appointments. Mm -hmm. We don't understand why. Well, there's some theorists that can help with right. this sort of demand for medicalisation, yeah. for the doctor in the white coat to tell you. And, mm. you know, there's interesting things there mm. that you can bring in. Mm. Um, and I think it is, you know, not to... You know, you do still get asked, why is your sample size so small and how can you possibly... Um, but then there are... Um, I've worked with uh, lots of, you know, consultants who themselves would only ever do quantitative or trial work, but they are really passionate about social science or qualitative work. Mm -hmm. And I think they do... They might not totally get it or be able to do it themselves but they can see that there is a value there and mm. so I think we have to just keep plugging our wares and pushing and and you know it will I think like you said there's a recognition that those you know they don't answer all the questions yeah. the gold standards mm. I think there's a recognition now that it really needs to be mixed methods mm. Mm. great yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so Sorry. much for your Thank time. You. <laughs> That's really great. And your insights. Wonderful. Thank you.